This is Jeff Patterson, the senior pastor of Wesley Memorial Church in High Point, North Carolina. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast. It's great to stay connected. I'm excited about the new sermon series uh, that is beginning in the month of August. It is a study of the book of Habakkuk, a great Old Testament prophet. The title of the sermon series is When God Doesn't because the prophet asked God some really tough questions in the book. And we're going to study that book together and learn how to uh, worship and love and serve God in the midst of very confusing times. So thank you for joining us. So then this is the third week of our series of When God Doesn't. And really trying to unpack a bit more of of what do we do with our faith, what do we do with, with, with uh, our relationship with God when we're in a time where it seems like um, we're, God seems silent. And so the two operative words for today are silence is one of them you'll hear, and then surrender, surrender and silence. And we're in, we're in the book of Habakkuk chapter 2, and uh, the, really the first 17 verses of, of Habakkuk 2 is, is, uh, is him being a prophet, as he was, and prophetically calling out the sins of his people. I'm not going to read all of it. We're really going to pick it up in verse 18 to verse 20. But as you'll see, uh, he really is calling out the sins of his people, and he's, he's calling out the, those who use wealth or, or their, their riches for evil. He's calling out the evildoers who are causing violence and bloodshed on the streets, those who are getting drunk and, and influencing others to do the same. Those who are, he's calling them all to surrender to the living God. And then we'll see in verse 18, though, he turns his attention to those who are worshiping idols. Verse 18, he says, What use is an idol once its maker has shaped it? a cast image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in what has been made, though the product is only an idol that cannot speak. Alas for you who say to the wood, wake up to silent stone, rouse yourself. Can it teach? See, it is gold and silver plated, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Surrender and silence. These words today, maybe I think will help us when we come in seasons of life when God is silent or God seems to be not doing anything. Surrender and silence. The first is surrender. As I said before, he, the prophet is telling the people to surrender their lives, to surrender their sin, to surrender their idols to God. Because the people then in his day, as we see throughout scripture, instead of God isn't doing what we want, God isn't performing the way we thought he should, and so we're going to make a God of our own hands. We're going to fashion an idol that serves our needs an object that we will trust more in than God alone. See, God, you didn't come through the way we wanted, so we're going to make one that does what we want. You see this throughout the Bible. In the book of Exodus, 
Moses, as we, the famous story, goes up on the Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, has revelation from God, to get the covenant from God for this new community, this new Israel. And then what happens at the base of the mountain? Simultaneously, Aaron and other people, they pull their gold together and they make a golden calf. They begin to worship an idol where God is right there. See, we're tempted to turn our backs on God when God doesn't do what we thought God should do, that God has somehow failed or that his timing was off. And so instead of surrendering our broken lives, instead of surrendering over our authority, instead of surrendering all of it to God, what people are tempted to do, even when God seems silent, what we're tempted to do is surrender our lives to an idol instead. The people must have said, if we can't get a God that we want, let's make one ourselves. Let's trust our own perception rather than God's promise. In verse 18, it says, the maker trusts more in what he has made. See, an idol isn't something that's just thrust onto you and you begin to worship it without knowing what you're doing. No, you're well aware of what's happening. Of your, you're in control of your faculties. No one has never been worshiping an idol and then all of a sudden awakening and thinking, oh, where am I? How did I get here? How did I worship this idol? No, you know what you're doing when you exalt something over God himself. Now, obviously in our day today, idols aren't quite as literal We don't have a lot of people worshiping a a stone statue or something made of silver or gold. But maybe our idols in America are a bit more figurative, a bit more metaphorical. Some examples of our modern idols that maybe we we do need to surrender to God. One is identity, worshiping of the self over God first that we become a people who are more interested in taking and in, in furthering our own agenda rather than the agenda of others or, the, or God's plans in the world. Identity. Another is, of course, money. Worshiping money. Look at the stock market the past many months. It continues to rise even though it's ignoring what's happening in Main Street America, worshiping money. Now, money can be a good thing. It can be used of God in ways that are a blessing to the world, of course. But when we idolize money over God, we begin to become hoarders who are more interested in taking than giving with a generous, open hand. Another idol in our culture, a large one, is politics. We begin to idolize our political agenda over uh, God's agenda, and what happens when we idolize politics is that we begin to see an us versus them mentality. We begin to throw stones at people who are just as much sinners as we are, and we begin to see winners and losers, us versus them. And when we idolize politics, it causes division more and more instead of building bridges between people. Another idol in our culture is sex or sexuality. The pornography business in our country is over $15 billion a year. And I think we all need to acknowledge that it has been done at this point. 
but people still can't look away. It is the sewer that runs underneath our country that no one is talking about, but it is an idol that we worship. But in its proper context, in a marriage covenant between a man and a woman, it is a good and blessed and holy thing, but outside of those boundaries, when we idolize it, as many of us know, it can become a very destructive and divisive thing. All these things that I've listed, at their purest essence, can become sacred things. They can, they can, they can be good things. But see, the enemy of our souls, the devil, he takes things that are sacred and desacralizes them. So, for example, identity. Your identity is sacred. You are a son and daughter of God. That God wants to remake the image of God within you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That your identity is not what the world or other people say about you. Your identity is what God says about you. A fought for, bled for, died for, son and daughter of God. And nothing will ever change that. Your identity is sacred. Money. Money can be sacred. It can be used of God to bless the world. Instead of hoarding, we can become people of generosity. I've known many wonderful Christian people who are people of well means who give lavishly to be a blessing to the world. To give not until it hurts, but to give until it feels and when it feels good. Now, politics, you're probably wondering how in the world could politics be sacred or holy, but think about it. There have been political movements that I believe God has used to help make the world a better place. Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement, obvious one there. Mahatma Gandhi in India, helping overthrow the British Empire and create emancipation for the Indian nation, or uh, Wilbur Wilberforce in 19th century England, helping overthrow the slave trade. Politics can be made and used in a way that builds bridges, that brings justice to the world. It's possible. It can be sacred. Your sexuality, your sec- it, it is sacred. In its purest essence, it can be a sacred, holy thing. But outside of those boundaries, it can become destructive. Whatever the idol is, when we worship them outside of their proper context, they can become desacralized. And Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You will either love one and hate the other. Matthew 6, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or mammon is the word. It really means material, possession, stuff. He's saying you cannot serve two masters, one or the other. You will eventually surrender to the one that maybe you shouldn't. There's only one God and one who we should worship above all else. Surrender all to him. Because Jesus is saying the positive side of surrender, the good side of surrender, is not to surrender to a mute idol or an idol that we've listed off in our country, but to surrender to God. Because a house divided cannot stand. The house of your own soul and life cannot stand if it is divided between God 
and something else. And that's what Habakkuk is saying to his people, and I believe to our nation today. If you, it's interesting that he contrasts the silence of a mute idol that cannot speak, and then he says, be silent before God's throne. Silence. Silence. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Now, for anyone that's been a person of faith for any stretch of time, you have been well aware that God uses silence in our lives. If you spend time in nature, go out in creation. Just yesterday, I went hiking on up to Hanging Rock, and you, we got to the top of that great hike, and, and you see this, um, well, yesterday it was all clouds around us, but it was still silent and actually quite beautiful. And you see that God is not afraid of silence. He actually uses it in creation. God is not intimidated by silence. In Revelation chapter 8, all of heaven is silent before the final uh, seal is broken. The first 37 chapters of the book of Job in the Old Testament, Job cries for God's help, and he's asking God for relief. God, where are you? God, it seems like you're not doing anything. And Job's cries are met with silence. And in the response of that silence, Job's wife famously says to Job, why don't you just curse God and die? But Job chooses to let God be God. Job 2.10, Job says, Shall we indeed accept good from God, but not accept adversity? A.W. A. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said, God is said to be absolutely free, because no one and no thing can hinder him or compel him or stop him. He is able to do as he pleases, always, everywhere, forever. And Job said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nothing in Job's life or our lives happens apart from God's knowledge and plan. When we accept God's sovereignty, his rule, it also means we trust God in the silence, in the valley, realizing that he's in control and can be trusted, well, then there's an eternal value and purpose to the silence. There's a value to silence. We, maybe you've heard this phrase, there's an elephant in the room. When you're in this sort of awkward pause or an awkward situation, you're with someone else and you know, maybe we haven't said everything needs to be said. And isn't it interesting? We have this sort of sixth sense that we're not speaking, but we can totally feel this awkwardness, you know it's off. But on the flip side of that, let's, let's get the elephant out of the room. When, when you're completely comfortable with a person, it's possible to sit in a room with someone and not utter any words at all and be at peace. There's no elephants with, with that. See, because in love, silence is actually a sign of intimacy, isn't it? Tranquility, complete trust. When you know you're with someone, you don't need to, just to talk all the time in order to communicate. Silence can be a sign of intimacy. In John chapter 11, the famous story of 
Jesus' friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And when Jesus finds out that Lazarus is ill, he does not rush to Lazarus' house to heal him. Instead, Jesus stays where he was for two more days. And before Jesus could get there, Lazarus dies. And to Lazarus' sisters, Jesus' silence could have been interpreted as neglect, that Jesus didn't care or want to help them. And this actually mirrors the emotions that many of us feel when God doesn't immediately answer our cries for help. But in Jesus' silence, along with Mary and Martha, we're actually drawn to a new closeness to God, to an understanding of his power. Four days after Lazarus dies, Jesus raises him from the dead, showing his sovereignty and his power. Oswald Chambers said in My Utmost for His Highest, When you cannot hear God, you will find that he has trusted you in the most intimate way possible. With absolute silence, it's not a silence of despair, but a silence of pleasure. Because God saw that you could withstand an even bigger revelation. When we surrender more of ourselves to God, we find more of the value and the intimacy of God. Did you know this? I've been reading about this. There are people that think the earth is flat. Now, if you're one of these people, you're probably alone right now in your home or in your car or something, and you can raise your hand. No one's going to judge you if you think the earth is flat, but there are people that think the earth is flat out there. There are some actually some NBA basketball players that have been quoted about this, but um, because a lot of them say from our perspective, from where we are, from my observer perspective, it looks like the earth is flat. There's a guy named Mike Hughes who this past February, he believed the earth was flat and he wanted to prove so. So he had been trying to get above the stratosphere so that he could see the fact that, that it was everything was flat and he could prove it. So he had been trying with balloons and different things over the course of a few years. Unfortunately, in February, his steam-powered rocket took off, and he did not survive. But he was trying to see that there was no curvature to the earth. See, he just thought, if I could get to a new observation point, a new perspective, then it would give me the truth I'm looking for. Last Sunday, I said how it may appear that God is distant or silent or not doing anything because from our perspective, it's an observational point of view. We can't see all the points of view. We have a very limited, finite understanding. It's how we perceive it. But just because it's how you observe it, it doesn't mean that's how it is, right? That doesn't mean that's what God is or isn't doing. Just like we can experience the world as flat, even though we're walking on a huge spinning ball, we can experience God as distant, even though we are living in him and moving and have, having our being. Just because we observe it, it doesn't mean it's true. 
In reality, God has not been absent or distant from you or me or or Habakkuk or King David or Job. We are simply called to trust God's promise more than our perception. But still, why do we have to feel that deprivation, right? Why do we have to go through those seasons of still observing God's silence? I'm not going to claim to have all the answers for this because it's almost innate to the human experience. But I believe there are clues that there is a design behind the deprivation. And let me explain what I mean. The author, John Bloom, touches on this idea with a lot of questions. Things like, why is it that absence makes the heart grow fonder, but familiarity breeds contempt? Why is water so much more refreshing when we're really thirsty? Why am I almost never satisfied with what I have, but always longing for more? Why can the thought of being denied a desire for a family or children or freedom or some other dream create in us a desperation that we previously didn't have? Why is the pursuit of earthly achievement often more enjoyable than the achievement itself? Why do deprivation, adversity, scarcity, and suffering often produce the best character qualities in us while prosperity, ease, and abundance often produce the worst? Do you see it? There is a design and a purpose and a value to the silence, if you will, that deprivation does draw out desire. Absence heightens desire. And the more heightened the desire, the greater the satisfaction will be. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, it is in the morning that you then know the joy of comfort, right? He says it again, it is, it is the hungry and thirsty in the Sermon on the Mount. He says it is the hungry and the thirsty that will be satisfied. In Luke 15, Jesus tells, says that the kingdom of God is like searching for a coin that's buried in a field. And it's in the, the searching and the hungering and the looking and, and eventually the finding that the fullness of joy is realized. The longing makes us ask. The emptiness makes us seek. The silence makes us knock. And then we find and we find joy. And then we are simultaneously found by God. The surrender and the silence. I don't know about you, but I know about me and many others. We are hungry for God right now in the silence. And we are ready to surrender all that we have to him day after day waiting on him, God, to move and to act. And he is, my friends. Be encouraged. Take heart, for he has overcome the world, that God never stops working on our behalf. And so I give a word to anyone watching or listening now who's in a place in your life 
where you don't know where to turn, you're broken and hurting and tired, and we're stressed out about what's coming down the line day after day. And I would like to pray with you and know that, let you know that our church prays with you and for you and is here to help in any way that we can to get through what we're going through together. And that when we surrender our lives more and more to God and even trust him in the silence, that he is there with us, closer than close to us. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you that you are with us in the moments of silence, in the moment when it feels like we don't know what's going on. God, ultimately, we have a choice. Will we surrender in those moments? Maybe surrender some idols that have been stealing our joy, have been stealing our intimacy with you. We've been taking things out of their proper context. Forgive us, O oh God, and you will for our impatience with your plans for our lives. I pray for anyone, especially young people watching right now, that are nervous and anxious about their future, their school. May the peace of God rest upon them, that your peace you will give to us. To know, God, that you're sovereign over the affairs of men and women. The earth is your footstool. You do hold the whole world in your hands. And from our perspective, God, we don't know sometimes what is going on. We have to surrender, God, to you. For you see it all. And I pray for anyone now that they would see that there is actually peace in that. There's peace in that perspective. When we trust your promise more than we trust our perception. And I pray for anyone right now in a hard time, God, that they would know that where they are is not who they are. Our identity is not in our circumstance or on labels or accusation that other people have put on us. But our identity, Lord, is in what your word says about each of us. And that we can claim that by faith. So Holy Spirit, move in the lives of your people Build them up in their faith. Grow them, O oh God. Let us be people, Lord, that follow you faithfully. Thank you for the wonderful people that watch the service every week. Bless them indeed as we continue to worship you at this time. Amen. But as we leave this time of worship, you and I can go and sing a new song into the world, the song of Jesus, the song of the resurrection, amen, the song of the forgiveness of sins, the songs of the peace of Prince of Peace who wants to come and live within people's hearts and change their lives. We can sing that song. When we lift up the name of Jesus above your own life, you will find your life. So let's go and be real and authentic to the world and say, you know what? I don't have all the answers, but I know that Jesus is real and that he is good and that he will come again. And until that day, we will mourn, but we will also dance.
and we will sing a new song. A new creation is coming, my friends, and you and I get to take part in that. So go in the power of the Holy Spirit and be the hands and feet of Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. God bless you.